Well, good morning. Welcome to Valley Baptist Church. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Psalm chapter 1. The Psalms are right in the middle of the Bible. So Psalms chapter 1, as you're turning there, you'll notice a slideshow. Psalm 1 is a short psalm, and from it we're going to kind of branch out. So what I'm doing is this slide is going to be here. Um, and this is should be with this big star next to it, meaning that that's the that's the plan of attack. Um, these are verses like as we go along where I'll be going. So if I kind of go too fast or say something or you're just taking notes, that's that's the verses that will be will be in today. So I thought that would be helpful to you. Um, so Psalm chapter one, I've been, you know, I had a friend tell me I was a little backwards on Facebook that I was doing the Psalms all out of whack, but there's a method to my madness. And Psalm one is significant in that it lays the groundwork for the rest of the Psalms. There's, it's not an accident that it's the first one. And, um, Dr. J. Vernon McGee says that this psalm describes two men going two ways with two different destinations. And we want to be like the one man, not like the other man. So we're going to pray, we're going to read the psalm, and then we're going to dive in. I say that every week, and was it Abigail that called me? We're going to open the text, and we are going to study the Word of God. I say dive in, I guess. You know, you have idiosyncrasies that you... But I like saying we're going to dive in. So let's pray and we'll read the text. Uh, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. Father, we thank you that it's living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. Lord, able to... Um, Cut into our lives, Lord, to um, show us, Lord, where we've wandered. And Father, we thank you for your spirit, which heals us, which uh, uses the word to mend our lives, to restore us to you. Father, we come before you asking that you would help us to understand this, this text. Lord, we pray that you would soften our hearts, Lord, that we would be receptive to your voice, Lord, that we would hear you as speaking to us. Lord, as James said... Father, we ask that we would not walk away from here and forget what you spoke to us, Lord, that our lives would be different, Lord, that we would keep you at the forefront of our thinking and the forefront of our hearts. We love you, Father, we praise you, and we ask this in Christ's holy name. Amen. So Psalm chapter 1, verse 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does he prospers. The wicked are not so. But they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Amen. So it's interesting, the very first verse of this says, Blessed is the man that does not do certain things. It doesn't say blessed is a man who does certain things. It, it begins by saying there are three things that the man who is blessed, or is you could translate that word blessed, happy. So happy or blessed is the man who doesn't partic- participate in certain actions. And we'll see that that on these three things we see kind of a almost a sliding scale. It goes from from um, walking 
does not walk, does not stand, and does not sit. So we see this sort of progression in how they treat different things. Uh, Many have suggested that um, the three different things, um, from the wicked to the passive sinners to the seat of scoffers, reflects three different scales of um, going against God, the ungodly. So the first section... Uh, the wicked could be translated ungodly. This would be the person who's kind of apathetic towards the things of God. They are not walking with the Lord, but they're not, you know, they're by, uh, by human standards, we would say, oh, they're a good person. They just don't care about God. Then the next one is the path of sinners. These are people who would be actively participating and, and engaging in a sinful lifestyle and then the seat of scoffers scoffers are those that are that are verbally attacking the things of god that they are proud about their stance against god and so the first thing i kind of observe about this is that the man is blessed who doesn't who doesn't walk with those who are apathetic doesn't um, stand in the midst of those that are sinning and doesn't sit down and participate with those that are attacking God is that it's kind of this slippery slope. And I think sin is like this. It starts slowly. We, um, you know, we, we think something's not a big deal. And then before you know it, it's kind of snowballed on you in such a way that you can't gain control over the situation. I think it's interesting that he says, blessed or happy is the man who doesn't participate in these things. In my own life, in, in practice and in observing, just even for, even for those that don't necessarily believe in God but, but live by sort of biblical principles, you can avoid so much pain and agony in your life just by not doing certain things and not associating with certain um, peoples or ideologies. And your life can just be better if you just don't, if you kind of live the way that God kind of dictates. There's a saying in Spanish, not that I in Spain Spanish, not that I speak it, but I've heard the translation, and I think it's really good. The saying is, "Show me who your friends are, and I'll tell you who you are." And this idea of who you run with, who your friends are, we're influenced by people around us, and so first. We kind of see in this section that the happy man or the blessed man is one who kind of keeps himself guarded from these influences from the outside, influences that are going against the things of God. Now I want to, in my own life, as I've come to Christ, there are people in my life that were very dear friends to me that I've had to not associate with. And the simple reason, one of my very good friends, I always refer to him as he was my kryptonite. I think I could hang out with him today if he would hang out with me, but he doesn't really, he keeps his distance. But I'd get around him and I would just go into total drunkenness. It was, I would, what, there was nothing I could do to resist his, his influence in me because of our track record before I came to Christ. He had a way with just, you know, luring me back into the old life. So I literally had to to keep my distance from this good friend for years so that I could grow in the Lord and get my life in order. Now from this, I think we have to be careful because on on one side of the, you know, we, we, we read verses like this and we think, well, I've got to cut myself out and away from all people. 
We need to uh, have build a, co- a community and isolate ourselves from the world. And I don't think that this is what this is saying at all. And the reason I think this, there's a couple verses. And Jesus, after his resurrection, as he's uh, in John chapter 20, verse uh, 20 and 21, as he appears to the disciples and they, you know, they touch him, and it's before. Um, it's before Thomas had come and touched his hands. He looks at them and he says, um, we read, and when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. So Jesus looks at the disciples and says, touch my hands, that's me, I'm in the flesh. I, I, I'm risen from the grave. See, this is where they stab me. I'm up, I'm alive, you can touch me. This is real, you're not dreaming. And then the disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So this joy of them to see that the Lord had risen from the grave. And they're praising Him. And Jesus, what He says to them is He says, So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And so we see that Jesus, the example of our Lord, who is God, who is holy, who is without sin, dwelt amongst sinners. He was accused that he was a drunkard, that he hung out with prostitutes, that he he was amongst the people, yet he was without sin. And he says, as I have come into the world, so send I you. So we as Christians are supposed to be salt to the world. We're supposed to be light. That means that we need to be out and in relationships and engaging those around us. But as we do this, we need to almost keep you know, a, a sort of partition around us so that we're walking closely with the Lord so that we're not influenced and led away from the Lord while we're standing. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, this is a... This one is really... You know, 1 Corinthians. <clears throat> Whenever you read anything out of the Corinthians, this was the church gone wild. Whenever we read about this, we have to understand that there were major problems, and all of Corinthians is, on both books, is Paul responding. They're, they're, they're in a very, very, um, bad community with, you know, immorality is rampant, and the church has got people from around the world, and they're trying to live for Christ, and they're having all kind of problems, and the leaders there, those guys that have been left behind as elders, are encountering all kind of problems, and they're writing Paul, Paul, how do you deal with this? Is this okay? Are we doing, are we supposed to be getting drunk when we take communion? You know, and Paul starts responding, is it okay if, if a guy has a relationship with his stepmother? Is that okay? You know, like, and so Paul's like dealing with them. And so in this case, in chapter 5, verse 1, we actually see it is actually reported that there's immorality among you. And immorality of such a kind does not exist even amongst the Gentiles. That someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that one who the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I on my part, though absent in body but present in the spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this, though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with power of our, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus. Verse six: Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven in the leavens leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the leaven, so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, 
but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter. So here, this is interesting. There's a major, major problem of sin within the church that needs to be dealt with by Paul. The church needs to handle it. He is very aggressive towards his pers- these people, saying you've got to deal with them. In 2 Corinthians, we'll see that he says, okay, go easy. You've restored them into fellowship. They've repented. Don't continue pushing them away. Your discipline was for the purpose of restoring them back to walking with the Lord. That always needs to be our goal. And you're like, Gunnar, what does this have to do with walking, judging? Well, then we see in verse 9, he says, I wrote you. So it's interesting. I think that this church so infuriated Paul that we know he previously wrote them, but we're reading 1 Corinthians. There was another Corinthians, but maybe Paul was so mad that it didn't make inspiration. Like he didn't deal with that. We don't know. But then he says, you know, I wrote to you in this previous letter not to associate with immoral people. You know, blessed is a man that does not walk, uh, walk, stand, or sit. He said, I told you not to associate with immoral people of, the, of this world or with the covetous or swindlers or with idolaters. For then you would have... Wait, I, I got I it. I did not at all mean with the... I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous or swindlers or with the idolaters. For then you would have to go out of the world. He says, when I told you not to associate with them... I didn't mean like the people of the world, the people that haven't accepted Christ or professing Christians. I wasn't talking about them. They don't know Jesus. They don't know the things of the Lord. They don't know the Bible. They need Jesus. So be amongst them. But he goes on to say in verse 10, he's, um, or verse 11, he says, But actually I wrote you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or reveler or drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So he's saying, listen, we have to be in the world. We have to be amongst because we're salt. We're light. Now, to, now there is within the body, you hear people, oh, the Bible says not to judge. Well, the Bible, there is a sort of I would use the word accountability within the body. Like as a pastor, if I see somebody within the flock that I've been entrusted to that's in like very clear sin, not like my convictions on things, but like the Bible says this is wrong, then I have an obligation to confront them in love and the aim of reconciliation for the health of the body and for their own health with the Lord. And Paul says, listen, you've got to deal with these in love. And by 2 Corinthians, we, I think it's chapter 3, we see fruit there that this person that Paul's dealing with, they've repented, they've given themselves back to the Lord, and Paul's encouraging them to come back to the... like They encourage the church, like, listen, don't keep... We all, none of us are perfect. We need to restore those people. But my point here is in that verse 10. Very clearly, Paul says... We're not to remove ourselves from... We'd have to leave the whole world. God very specifically placed us in the world to be His ambassadors for Christ. So back to the Psalms here. So Paul or David says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of wicked, nor stand in the paths of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. And I think that the idea here is like, listen, you need to examine... What are the things that are influencing you? 
What are the things that you're watching? How does Scripture play into your life compared to, you know, either the BBC or Fox News, wherever you are? Like these things that we watch and are taking in, are we watching the things that we're, we're getting in from the media? Are we screening that stuff through Scripture? Or is that stuff shaping our opinions and feelings and how we view the world? Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, one, this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. In Ephesians 5, verses 15 through 17, he says, Therefore, be careful how you walk. Be careful how you live your life. Not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time. And this word time is not chronos. It's not like, hey, you only have 24 hours a day, so jam as much stuff in so that you're most effective. It's kairos, which means make the most of your time. Like the, the things that you do with your life, life is so short and you can't get time back. So make the most of those moments. He goes on to say, making the most of your time because the days are evil. Listen, the whole world around us that we're in is evil. And so as we're living our life, we need to be very careful about the things, the way we think, our actions. And you just, what we believe comes out in everything. It was funny, I went to Kiwanis on Friday. And the, the chaplain happens, there's a, there's a chaplain friend of mine from the Escondido Police Department who also keeps bees. And he's giving a lecture on beekeeping to the Qantas Club. It's fascinating. But even on the subject of bees, your theology comes out. Like hearing him talk, he wasn't overtly talking about Bible, but you can say, okay, this guy's been influenced by the Word of God, and it's coming out. Like because I know the Word, I can hear it in his talk on beekeeping. Like, you know, he ended with pray for the bees of the world. Like that was a pretty obvious one. But you can because there's a there's a bee problem like we're losing our bees, and 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 so he gives the way he was talking. So everything that we do, how you do your business, how you lead your lives, how you do stuff, it's dictated by the word of God. Like did it be not necessarily that we're quoting verses to people, but it becomes a part of us and how we view life. And we're going to see that that the wicked man doesn't have this. And I would encourage us. Carefully examine your life. Think about the stuff that we do. We're about to get like, you know, and there's a certain season when the, the, the hurricanes come through the East Coast. It's like hurricane season. And they come through like bowling balls at the bowling alley. You know, it's like boom, 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 boom. Well, we're like in holiday season. Like we have Halloween. We have Thanksgiving. We have Christmas. We have, there's, there's, there's a bunch of holidays. And I would encourage all of those holidays. Well, why do we celebrate these holidays? Or how, what, what, how does Christ play into all of these holidays? How do we live our lives? How does the word impact this? We're to think about this sort of stuff. And he goes on to say in verse 2, as he says, don't do these things. Then he says, but his, speaking of this blessed or happy man... His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Before I was a Christian, I, maybe you guys said the same thing, maybe you've heard it. My big line was, I didn't want to become a Christian because I didn't want to stop having fun. But from this point of my life, I didn't know how to have fun until I became a Christian. And I love this when I started studying this verse to read, realized that blessed you could translate as being happy. Like our, I don't know what your picture is of Jesus, but I think he was a crack up. 
I think he so loved life. He had no like sin burden. He had no shame, no guilt. His like he was a joy to be around. And unfortunately, like Charles Swindoll says, that most Christians seem like they've been baptized in lemon juice. Like we can have fun, we can enjoy life, we can be happy. And it says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And as a non-Christian, to enjoy, to get pleasure out of the word of God, like that seems crazy to me. But why do we delight or take pleasure in the law of the Lord? There's too many places to go, but a couple that I want to point out is Psalm 19. This is, flip over a couple pages to Psalm 19. This is probably one of my favorite psalms. It is definitely one of my favorite psalms. Um, but, but they're also good, you know. <laughs> so I don't want to be caught on record saying, you said this was your favorite. This is like, this is a really good one. And it starts out, the first six verses, kind of the psalmist is looking at creation. He says, you know, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. And he's just looking around him and saying, you know what? How can you see the world and God's creation and not rejoice in how good God is? But then in verse 7 to 14, he goes from general revelation to specific revelation praising God for His Word, which He's revealed to us. This is what God has communicated to us to know about Him. And in verse 7, He says, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. So this Bible that we read, it has the ability to restore our souls. That's good. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making the wise simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. We get this blessed happiness. Like as we grow closer to God, it should bring a smile to our face. Not turn us into a bunch of cops that are trying to ticket the world for sinning against God. But for praising Him that He's pulled us out of the miry clay, that He's restored our soul, that He's made us happy no matter what's going on in our lives. He keeps going. The fear of the Lord is enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold. Yes, much finer than gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of honeycomb. Like, the psalmist knew how awesome the word of God was to us. If we turn over, let's see here, to Psalm 119. So add a, add a Psalm 119. I, I, I know, I wish I could do this whole psalm. I thought when doing this series that we would break up the psalm over six weeks, but I opted not to do that. But this psalm is amazing, talking about the law of the Lord. In verse 1, Psalm 119, verse 1, it says, How blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk, this idea of walking, this is your lifestyle. How blessed or happy are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Verse 9, the psalmist asks, How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. So as we put the word of God, the word of God will direct our paths. Verse 11, Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. I shall delight in your statues. I I shall not forget your word. I need to get to my notes because I'm going to just read the whole psalm to you. Uh, verse 105, kind of flip all the way through. This verse had a tremendous impact in my life. As a new Christian, I really just wanted to like serve God, to walk with Him. 
But I had, I like to have like a, you know, most people have like a one year plan, a three year plan, a five year plan. I like, I used to like to be mapped out for like 50 years in advance. Like, like if I could map out to the day I died, I would do it. And I'd have it all in my calendar and I'd just live by the calendar and, but God has kind of slowly been breaking me of this. And a person's pointed out Psalm 119, 105 to me. And he said that your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. This, this doesn't give, it's not a fog light out in front of you that you can shoot out so many years. But as we live our lives and as we're in the word, it's a light that will help guide our steps in the immediate questions and needs that we have. We turn to it and it guides us. Then going on to Psalm 160, the psalmist writes, The sum of your words. So we look at all of the scriptures. The sum of it together is truth. There is a such thing as truth. I believe in absolute truth. Our world today doesn't really care about truth. Our culture has... It is okay to have contradictions that contradict one another and say both are true. Like one, for example, is the fetal homicide law. If I'm somebody and I kill a pregnant girl and, she, and the baby dies, I'm accused for two murders. I'm tried for two murders. But that woman can choose to have the baby killed. Um, if someone says, see, the sum of your word is truth. Um, and so, so there's truth is truth. Either it's a child or it's not a child. You can't have it both ways. But that's just one example of many examples in our culture where we have become crazy in our thinking. That there's no, like truth, truth is true, what's true to you is true to you, what's true to me is true to me. Well, what if those contradict? Well, there's a problem because truth is truth. You can't change it. He says, the sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. So we look at this, going back to Psalm 1, verse 2. His delight is in the law of the Lord. Like that, you know, I'm reading this book slowly by Bonhoeffer, and the radical thing in Bonhoeffer's thinking is suddenly that once you give your life to Christ and you receive the Spirit, the Word changes. And his big thing he was pushing is like, you just can't, like these letters to his family, you can't just read it like a book. Like once you trust in Christ, then it comes alive. And you've got to pray and seek the Lord as you... Like it should actually apply to your life and it should guide you day by day. And that was his radical thought that he would go to his death for, protecting the Jewish people. And so it says, His delight is in the Lord, His joy, His pleasure is in the law of the Lord, and His law He meditates. This word meditate... See, in the Eastern religion, meditation means to like empty oneself... And I think that like perfection is when like you're like everything becomes nothingness. Like when you so empty your thought, and I think that's Zen. I think, don't quote me, because I'm not one. But here we're told to meditate on the word of the Lord. That we think about it, that we chew it over, that we memorize it. And you at the time of this writing, see we all hold scriptures. Like if you don't have a Bible, the church we can give you about fifteen Bibles just in the chair. You just go. 
Like we have the Word of God on the computer, on the internet, like everywhere you go, we have scriptures. But during this time, like this is a phenomenon that happened in the 1500s that the Word of God, the printing press, that we now have the scriptures. Back then, one synagogue would have, like, this would be the Bible for the church. And on Sundays or the Sabbath during biblical times, we would read the scriptures. It would be stored here. And so you would have to memorize it. You would have to think about it. You would meditate on it day and night. In Israel, every week I seem to be talking about Israel now because it's still like, I'm still processing it. One of the coolest things, on the very first day, we did a devotion. And if you want to turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6, our very first day in the bus, this is the, I think it's the El Shema, if that's Shema, just Shema. There's no L, that's Spanish. That's me, that's me merging language. It's just the Shema. And uh, this, is, this is like the guiding verse this passage. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. That's the command right there. To love God with everything. And so the Devo was about like, just like through our time in Israel, that we would focus on like asking God to help him love us with all of our strength, all of our might and all of our heart. Like that we would just consume it. And it goes on to say, um, verse 6, These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. Do you guys see the theme? Like when you're sitting, when you're standing, when you're walking, teach these things. Meditate them. May they be on your heart. It's the very opposite of Psalm 1. Not just to like remove yourself, but that the word of God, that the statues of God would be on your heart when you're standing up, that you'd be meditating on them. When you're walking, that you'd be meditating. When you're with your children, you're talking and dialoguing about them. It goes on to say in verse 8, You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead, and you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. And the fascinating thing, when you go to Israel... Like every hotel room, almost every business, on the door, there's a mezuzah, which is a little box with this scripture in it. And so you want, like, so that first devo, everywhere you go, you see these little devos. Then you start noticing the Israelis, like, touching the box as they walk by. And it's like, okay, I'm to love the Lord God with all my heart, with all of my strength. Like, that's meditation. Pondering these truths. And this is the Psalms, which was worship. This was their. This was like their hymnal. And music is powerful. And why is music powerful? Because it. I mean, people make hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars, writing jingles for salesmen because it gets stuck in your head, and you can't get a jingle out of your head. And so then, as we sing, as we worship. Like like every week, Rick emails me the songs, and I go through and I say, "Oh, can we change this song?" Like he's way more patient than I would be with me. It's like, "Oh, can we can we change this out? We need to the words need to kind of fit the text because the words, the things that we sing, it's not just to feel good to lift our spirits. We want to put a message into our heads, our minds, so that when we're living our week, we would hear 
You know, we're going to close with how great is our God that we kind of get, oh, how great is our God? How great our God is. This week, just out of the blue, I wasn't even trying to prep grace or anything for the sermon. Like, I wasn't fishing for an illustration. She came up to me and she said, you know, during the second service, she sits with me and I basically kneel down to her because she can't really read all the words. Some of the songs she knows, and I read her the words so that she can get them into her head so she kind of learns the songs. And she says, Dad, you know what? I really love that song. Um, what is it? She actually knows the word, the title. Like, How Great is Jehovah? What, is that it? How Great is Jehovah? Um, no God Like Jehovah. And I'm like, wait, well, I don't think we've even sung that. And here's my little four-and-a-half-year-old girl going, man, that song's just great. There's no God like Jehovah. There is, there is no God like Yahweh. There's only one. And so we, we choose these songs so that we would meditate on them. You know, early in my Christian life, I remember I was, I was in the Navy. I'd become a Christian. And I really felt lost. Like there was no sort of like decide. Like I was just like I, I came to I met the Lord, gave my life to Him. Then I was in the Navy and I was doing the best I could to go to church. And I just remember having this strong desire to read the Bible. Like I had no Bible education growing up. Like I couldn't I couldn't tell you what was in between Genesis Revelation. I don't even want to give myself enough credit to tell you that I could tell you that Genesis was in the beginning and Revelation was in the end. I didn't know that. I I had none. And I had this I was just so compelled that I needed to read the scriptures after I was like after I gave my life to the Lord within a couple of years. It's like I've got to read this. Because if I read this then all my answers will be quite... And it didn't quite work out like that. But I knew that the questions of my life, the things I was longing for, it was found here because this is what God revealed to us. And it just doesn't happen overnight. It's a lifetime, you know what? Because God is constantly working in your life. You can read one verse, and you go, that it doesn't make a lot of sense. And then five years down the road, that verse like is what God uses to get you through what you're going through. Like, everybody that's smiling right now, nodding, has been there. And then, ten years down the road, that verse is kind of like, ah, you know, that verse had a big impact in my life. But man, look at this. And it's funny, if you're a person who marks through the Bible, you can kind of see seasons of your life, what you're going through based on your markings. Like, I really wish I would have started dating my markings. Like, But, I mean, I never get through the Bible if that happens. So then he says, so the person delights delights in the law of the Lord and his statutes he meditates. So he's, why does he do this? What results? And it says he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yields fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and in whatever he does he prospers. And so this picture of the tree, like I think a lot of times we have this image of of a tr- like a tree in Washington, you know, the big sequoias and green, lush everywhere. But that wasn't the case. This tree, it's kind of hard because of the lights. But it's a barren desert. And then you have this tree with green. It's like in the midst of it. And you go to the desert here or in Israel. Suddenly you'll see this tree in the middle of total dry. I mean, like when you go to the desert, you can feel your lips like withering away. It's like, oh, where's that chapstick? I'm like, because it just sucks the moisture out of everything. And so when you see a green tree in the middle of the desert, it's like it's getting water somewhere. And it's got roots. And the environment around it is harsh. But it's drawing from this water and it's keeping it green that it can preserve. And you know what? The environment that we are in on this world and our culture is harsh. And in order to keep 
bearing fruit in season, which doesn't necessarily, you don't plant a tree and fruit comes out the next day. You need like five years to start producing good fruit. It says that its leaf does not wither. And so as we put the word of God in, we get this, this picture of, of what David Jeremiah suggests, except I've manipulated one of his words. He says strength. The picture of this tree is that it's strong, like as adverse conditions come upon the tree, it can endure. It's stability, that it's stable, it's not moving. Um, the third one, I don't know what word he used, but it was with an S, because he was going with an S theme, but it was like, the word. what he meant was life, but life doesn't start with an S. So I just changed it for life. The, the, the leaf does not wither. And then success, that whatever he does prospers. Now this isn't necessarily financial prospering, but when I go to a third world country, or when I see a Christian just glowing, and then you realize that everything around them, their families abandoned them, everything's fallen apart, and there's just joy there. Man, it's because they have deep roots and they understand who God is. Second Timothy 3.16, if you want to go there. Because of this truth, so Second Timothy chapter 3, hold your place in Psalm 1. What I love another thing about this Bonhoeffer book, when he spoke, he tried to be boring. He said that he didn't want to influence people by how he spoke. He wanted the content of what he said to be the thing that grounded them because he knew that there was power in the word. And in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 are normally the verses that are just read, but I want to read a little bit more. It says, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God or the person of God might be adequate, equipped for every good work. That the Bible has a way, as we put it into us, to correct us, to convict us of our sin, to help us to get our lives right, to help us to be better husbands and wives and children and employees and employers. It directs every single aspect of our life. And then Paul continues in chapter 4, verse 1. He says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Great patience. It's not on what Timothy wanted. It's based on the word. He says, because of this, this is why we devote so much time to teaching the scriptures here, because I can tell jokes, kind of, I can be funny. None of that stuff's going to like do anything for you. But getting the word of God into your hearts, this is where life transformation happens. And I think very like in the next couple months, I'm going to start kind of focusing on music, and we're going to mix stuff up. You can go back to Psalms. So we want the word to go in our heart, and music is a tool to get biblical truths into our hearts and our minds, so that we meditate on it and we think of these things. And I'd encourage you, like even this week, I don't know what you guys listen to on your car radio, but you can fast secular stuff. You can. We are blessed with like two Christian radio stations. Get a Christian worship CD and just see how it affects you by putting biblical truth into you through multiple avenues. Because just on Sunday is not going to get you through the week. So verses 4 through 6, we see the other man and the other destination. It says, The wicked are not so, 
The ungodly are not so. This, this picture of the tree, the strength, stability, life, successfulness, it's not there with the wicked. It says, but they are like shaft with the wind drives away. They're just kind of blown here and there. Like they're not grounded. Like the Word of God grounds us to the Creator of the universe. We only know of God because He has revealed Himself to us, not because we found Him. And He's revealed His truth, and as this Word goes into our hearts, it keeps us tethered to God. To those without God, well, one day something might feel good. The next day it might not feel so good. So they do something else. It says that the wind just kind of blows them away. There's no strength, stability, success. It says, therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. Now, that's interesting. We always think through the scriptures that judgment is bad. And like, if this is judgment, I want to be over here. I don't want to stand like you because lightning might strike. It doesn't really work like that. But here, the wicked... They won't be able to stand here. And this picture in the Hebrew of standing is being able to look up. That when God appears to judge, they're not going to be, they're going to fall on their knees and confess to their judgment. It reminds me of a verse in 1 John chapter 2, 28. That says, now little children abide in Him, speaking of Jesus, that our instruction is to abide in Christ by praying, by being in the Word, by fellowshipping, by walking with the Lord. So that when He appears, because Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. You might die before He comes back, but you're going to meet Him nonetheless. And He says, abide in Him. The reason we want to abide in Him is so that when He appears, we may have confidence. And not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. And so this picture of the psalmist that the wicked will not be able to stand, they're not going to be able to look up, but those in Christ, we can stand. And I can tell you, I've heard people say it a million times about, well, when you go to Israel and you hear the little kids. And I was like searching for it. Man, there were no little kids that I saw until like the last day. We're down in the southern region where where God made the covenant with Abraham. And the guy's trying to talk and there's this little girl that's about a year and a half in a diaper like running behind him going, Abba, 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 Abba. And it's like, man, you don't got anything on this girl. Like we're all watching this little kid. But this is that picture for us as we abide in Christ and God appears, we can stand and look and say, Daddy, you're here. No shrinking away, no shame. It says, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And as we close today, I think that the first and foremost of all of this, that Jesus, as we've been going through Isaiah this year, going to Israel, it's amazing to look at the prophecy fulfilled in Jesus. That He fulfilled so many things. There's so much evidence to trust in Him for salvation. So the the first to get on this path between the wicked and the righteous is to come to Christ. Because you see, we can't pay for our sin. Our sin has separated us from God, but Jesus has paid the, the penalty. And then for all of us who have trusted, last week we sang a song, Trust and Obey. And looking at the lines of this hymn, 
is powerful. This it says kind of it summarizes the Christian life. When you walk with the Lord in the light of His Word, so as you live your life studying the Scriptures, allowing the Scriptures to speak to you and to guide you, what a glory He sheds on our way. While we do His good will, He abides with us still, and with all who would trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Like, it's okay for us to be happy. We can enjoy life. God has redeemed us. He set us on the rock of Christ. We need to study the Word. We need to put things into our mind that we can meditate on the Word of God. And so I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask us to stand as we pray. We're going to come up and we're going to sing this song. How great is our God combined with an old hymn that we always kind of do and I actually put the words in it so we won't be lost. <clears throat> but God is good. And He loves us. He loves us so much that He sent His Son to die for us. That there's life in Christ. Our old nature is gone. We're new life in Christ. Let us rejoice and be glad in this day. Father, we praise You for You are good. Father, we thank you that you have enabled us to walk this path of righteousness. Father, it's not on our own merit, but by the work of Christ done on that cross. Father, we thank you that in trusting in Christ, Lord, that we're sealed in the Spirit. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you've redeemed us, that you've restored our soul, that you've brought joy to us. Father, we all are going through difficult times. This time, The times we live in are perilous. And so, Father, we pray that we could be this happy, blessed man, the person, woman, child. Lord, that as we delight in your word, Father, that you would restore our soul, that you would bring us much rejoicing. Father, we pray that this song of how great is our God, we're declaring, Lord, that you're great, that you're awesome, that you're mighty. And, Father, we pray that this week you would help us to see, Lord, what things are we meditating on, Lord? Father, help us to be a light to this world that so desperately needs you. We love you and we praise you. And we ask this in Christ's good name. Amen.